In the book of Joshua, as that book closes and we see that chapter of the life of Israel finally concluding and they are coming into the land and now getting some sort of normalcy developed in the land of Canaan, what we find is a statement made by Joshua. There seems to be some discontent going on and there might be this appeal to go back to idolatry. Even at the close, when Joshua is still there with them, who had beheld Moses, who had been in the Exodus, who had seen all of the great miracles that were wrought by the God of heaven, what happens now, there begins to be some murmuring again. And Joshua makes a statement very clearly in Joshua 24, in verse 15. If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, then choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, and you may have seen this crocheted on many people's walls in their home, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua takes a stand there amongst the children of Israel saying, we will serve God. No matter what comes, no matter the peer pressure that might be put upon us, Our goal and our objective and our aim is to serve God wholeheartedly in every instance in life. You think about that statement as he makes it. He says, whether the gods that your father served who are on the other side of the flood, what is he implying there? They did not and were not able to save them from the wrath of God. Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. Again, the implication... If you revert to them, you're reverting to a uh, subordinate type of view because God has overtaken them as well. And He has a trust and a confidence in the God of heaven that will not be shaken, even though many in Israel are complaining and murmuring against them serving God. We know how the story ends. The book concludes. Joshua dies and we move into the period of the Judges. At the end of that book... We know that the Bible tells us that in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And we see kind of the digression there of the children of Israel. I want us to talk tonight specifically about a text that I think has real bearing and import to every child of God. Every individual who has said, I am a Christian, I will serve God needs to and has at some point wrestled with the question that we're going to be looking at tonight But really the setting begins in John chapter 6. We look at Jesus the Christ who has performed miracles previously. We know in John chapter 5, He's healed several individuals. And so the people followed Him because He saw the miracles that were wrought on those that were sick and those that were ill. Chapter 6 opens and we see that we know the Passover is nigh. Jesus has all these people coming to Him. And He looks at His disciples and He says, where's the bread that we can feed these folks. And we see maybe the response, uh, how are we going to feed so many? And what happens? We know Jesus feeds 5,000 there. Feeds a multitude with just the loaves and the fish. And at that point, there begins to be a real sense of belief in Jesus as the Messiah. If you want someone who can overthrow a political regime, if you want someone who is going to be on your side, you want someone who can supply you with what we would say, bullets, beans, and band-aids, right? If you've ever been in the military, you know that when we think about supply, we think about bullets, that is munitions, beans, that's food, and band-aids, health care. How do we take care of our troops in the field so that they can be active continually? Guess what? Jesus met all of those things. He had the power to overthrow 
He had the ability to heal and to restore. And he had the ability to feed. And what happens? You see the excited multitude maybe realize finally this is the Christ that we have waited for for so long. He has been sent to overthrow the governing hand of Rome. And at that point, verse 15, I think, stands out in stark juxtaposition to what Jesus' task was. There we know Jesus says when He perceived that they were going to come and take Him and make Him king by force, what did He do? He withdrew. He didn't take it. He didn't accept it. And He prevented them from bestowing on Him that title. Now you think about those that are following the Christ. Wait a minute. All of our hopes and our aspirations of what the Messiah was supposed to be were to happen right here. If ever there were a time in the life of Christ where He had the excited multitude on His side, if ever there were a time when they could say, truly, this is the Messiah who should redeem Israel, this was the moment. And those who were following Him look perplexed almost as they get into the boat and cross the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Maybe perhaps with their heads hanging low thinking this was the moment that He should have become king. And He turned it down. How many times do things happen in our lives that we question? They don't go exactly how we thought they were supposed to go. And we might question God's providence in it all. You think about those figures here, the apostles, the disciples at the time, who were expecting Jesus to take on this new role. And for them to have some sort of benefit from it by being around the Christ, and yet He does not. He withdraws Himself, goes apart in a mountain to pray. As the night begins to fall, His disciples get in a boat and head back to the other side. The text continues. Jesus, probably looking down from the place where He has been, can look out upon the moonlit Sea of Galilee and see that boat making its way against a strong headwind, the Bible tells us, and unable to row to the other side. Jesus, at that time, taking the advantage to come down and walk across the sea. We know that the text unfolds in another gospel. They see him. They view him as a ghost. Peter gets out of the boat and walks to him. We have that great scene. After Jesus gets in the boat, they are on the other side. But see, in Jesus so doing that, he proclaimed himself to be a king in a much higher, loftier sense than that excited multitude would have ever allowed. See, because Jesus is the king of Israel would have only been Jesus is the king of Israel. Not Jesus, the King of creation. Jesus, the King of all, who is Lord of all. They begin to see the miraculous that Christ can do. And now they come, this excited multitude realizes that Christ did not go with His disciples. He went the opposite direction. And yet, on the morning, Jesus is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they make their way across. They finally catch up with Jesus and say, we didn't see you, get in the boat, what's going on? And then they began to have a discussion about who he really is. He is the bread of life. He begins to have that discussion that we concern ourselves with most Sundays of the Lord's Supper, eating the body of Christ, drinking the blood of Christ. Jesus makes very difficult statements in this passage. In fact, they would even say, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Who can understand these things? And that's really where we find our context tonight in John 6. If you would open your Bibles to John 6, beginning in verse 66. 
Well, let's start in 65. He said, And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will you also go away? You see, Christ in his teaching was teaching very difficult things. How many times do we run across difficult things in the Word of God and maybe want to throw our hands up and say, well, I'm never going to understand this anyway. Or maybe, what is the point of all of this anyway? You see, Jesus went from the Messiah to a lunatic almost overnight. He went from the the individual who would redeem Israel to someone who should not be listened to at all. We know the text tells us that they went away. They couldn't understand what He was saying They didn't have a spiritual mind for the purpose of understanding. And so they abandoned the Christ. And now a really germane question is pointed at the twelve. Jesus looks at them as these people are departing and asks the question, will you also go away? See, that's the question that I think we all wrestle with from time to time. We look at the way society views Christianity. We look at the way maybe society might view religion on the whole and Christianity in particular and think to ourselves, if that's the caricature that they paint of those who are religious, am I really on a fool's errand? Is there solidarity in what I believe in? Do I really truly have confidence in God? Should I abandon this pursuit too? Because look how many people have left. Maybe they know something I don't. Do we wrestle with those doubts? Have we wrestled and had those struggles from time to time? I know I have. I thought, what is the point in all of this if that many people don't see a value or a benefit in it? I'm reminded of several words of the Christ. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Straight is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. We think about that question, will you also go away? And we might ask ourselves that same question when we see individuals departing, leaving the faith. And by the way, there are many who are consistently abandoning Christianity. We might see it even here in our own midst, in our own body. Those who have given up the fight, who have laid down their swords and gone back to the world. But the question remains... Why would people depart? Paul would say in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God because it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. When we think about the, the reasons people abandon Christianity, oftentimes it's because they have a mindset on the physical rather than on the spiritual. They have a view towards those things of the here and now rather than a view towards those things in eternity. You might think about what Peter says in his work. And it was even read this morning. The fact that when we look or have eyes toward heaven's shore, then we are not short-sighted or blind, but we are effective in the work of the Lord. If that's true, then why do people leave? Because I believe that they forget those most important things. Jesus would say in Matthew 13, Therefore do I speak to them in parables, for seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the saying of Isaiah, which saith, Hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and by seeing you shall see and not perceive. For this people's heart 
is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they shall see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. You see, when we have a mind towards the things of God, then we can understand those spiritual truths. We come into that understanding, and we can even come into that right union when we so respond to the gospel call. But here the Jews have their eyes blinded to why He was there. He was the Jews' Messiah. The Messiah that was to come was to redeem them from Rome, not from sin. And how many people preach the health and wealth gospel today? God is here to relieve me of my poverty, not my sin. God is here to relieve me of the difficulties that I have in making friends, my social circle, not my sin. God is the one who's supposed to come in and make everything comfortable in this life, not make things comfortable for the next. You see, and if Satan can convince us to have those kind of inordinate expectations about the role of God and the Christ in our lives, then we too can succumb to the fate of these individuals in departing from Christ. People today have completely abandoned God because of their unbelief. The Hebrews writer addresses this very succinctly in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Why do people ultimately renounce Christianity? Because they don't believe. What does belief cause us to do? What does conviction in our lives cause us to do? What does it motivate us toward? If I am convinced that a rock is hard, do I want a boulder to fall on me? No. But my knowledge and my conviction of the fact that rocks are hard is good, isn't it? Because if I'm floating down a stream, I know that I can grab a hold of a rock and it'll keep me there. Our convictions help guide our actions and the choices that we make. And if we are convicted that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that He means what He says, then our lives will follow suit. But when we don't believe, when we give up, we can depart. The Hebrews writer would continue in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. In verse 12 he says, Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any of you fall after the same example of unbelief. It is a labor, it is a work, it is a goal, it is a challenge, it costs us time, it costs us everything sometimes. Energies, agendas, money, you name it. But in the end, it's all worth it if we are convicted and we remain faithful. Why do some people depart? I'm convinced that there was never any desire or conviction there. They weren't convicted. We might look at the conviction of the Apostle Paul. Paul preaching to a hostile audience. But he says in Romans 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall, and note the word here, live by faith. The conviction begets a life that's consistent with that belief. And as the conviction goes, so goes the life. If we're convicted that Christ does not mean what He says, then guess what? The life will follow. And we won't be as faithful as we ought. 
Will you also go away? That question asked in earnest to His disciples at that time, seeing what peer pressure might do to them, looks at them probably eye to eye and says, are you going to leave too? They had a choice at that point. They were not beholden to follow the Christ. But let us look at the response. Verses 68 and 69. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The response is just as critical as the question, will you also go away? And he's met with that same question, Lord, to whom shall we go? And the question remains for us, if we abandon Christianity, what lifestyle or pursuit is better There's not one. There is no better pursuit in this life than to live as God wants us to do in Christ. And Peter makes that statement, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or you have the words of eternal life. You are the one that has been sent. And we know and note the surety, the conviction here, and art sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, wait a minute. How does he know this? He just turned down the kingship. Context is important for what Peter says. Jesus just turned down the kingship when he knew that they wanted to come and make him king by force. And yet Peter says, we know you are the Christ. I think Peter was always on to something. I just don't think he ever really knew what it was until afterwards. But Jesus the Christ is the Son of God. And if we are to remain convicted, we need to understand that most basic and fundamental fact. We know John 1 tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning. That is Jesus the Christ, and He is the Savior of the world. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Maybe in that self-deprecating view, knowing what He had perpetrated against the church. But Jesus came to save you and to save me from the sin that so plagues mankind that would draw us away from an eternity with God. Acts 4 and verse 12, we know the statement there, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. When we know who Christ is, and we know that He has the words of life, then we know who we have put our trust in. Paul would say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep or guard or protect that which I have committed unto Him against that day. What is he talking about there? He's talking about his very own soul that he's committed to God in trust. But how does that come? Well, we have to be committed to that truth. And commitment to the Lord can be accomplished by us knowing who He is. Jesus says in John 8 and verse 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Not only the truth as it is in Christ, but the truth about sin and the truth about God's design for mankind in our living here. Jesus would also say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14 and verse 6. No man cometh to the Father but by me. In regards to abandonment and making that decision to follow Christ completely, the writer of Luke, Luke, tells us in Luke 9 and verse 62, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. My granddad raised mules, and he plowed fields with a single plow. 
uh, a mule pulling it out in East Texas. That's where I'm from. Uh, and I, I'm familiar with some of those things. I haven't necessarily plowed a field with a mule. I've seen it done. And one of the things that he told me, or he asked me, I think kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know what you have to do when you're plowing a field with a mule? And I said, Pops, do you really think I know what I have to do? And he started laughing, and he said, yeah, you probably don't. He said, you pick a tree right between that mule's ears, and you look at that tree as you're plowing that row, and you go, and you follow all the way till you get to the fence line. And he said, do you know why you do that? And I said, so you can make a straight row? And he said, well, yes. And he said, but what happens if you look back at where you plow? And I said, you forget the tree that you had lined up on. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back, Jesus says, is fit for the kingdom of God. When we look back to the things of the world with a longing, with a desire to be there again, that's the emphasis of what he's saying. No man who looks back with longing on the things of the world and forgets to look ahead at the eternity is fit for the kingdom of God because those rows will never be straight. We'll have plowed in error. There's got to be a real conviction for us and a trust in the Christ. I'm reminded of the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And the text that he says there, he says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and of Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. He would go on to say, Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might attain a better resurrection Still others had trial of cruel mockings and of scourgings. They moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were tempted. They were sawn asunder. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, tormented, and afflicted, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered about in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. That is what faithfulness and fidelity to God looks like. No matter the situation, there is that desire to serve God. And when the question is raised, will you also go away? The response is, to whom shall we go? Who will we go to? Atheism doesn't have the answers. None of the other world religions have the answers, those eternal answers to what we are doing here. And so, to be a Christian is to be confident and to be steadfast in God. The Hebrews writer would say, Cast not away therefore thy confidence, which has great recompense of reward. Hebrews 10 and verse 35. When we have that kind of zeal for God, then we can remain faithful. But there is a problem. Let us look at the text, verse 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. We might go back to Acts chapter 20, when Paul is giving his final encouragements to the uh, Ephesian elders on the shores of Miletus. And he makes the statement, From your own self shall men arise, drawing people away. Here, 
even among those who are closest to Jesus the Christ, there is the problem of unbelief. There is the problem of the devil. And in every instance, Satan, the adversary, seeks to draw us away from the God of heaven, capitalizing on suffering in whatever way he can to make us doubt God's faithfulness to us. In every way, trying to to come between us and the God of heaven so that we will abandon him. And how do we handle that kind of problem? Is it a real issue? Absolutely. Profession does not always equal salvation, even though Judas Iscariot was a follower of Christ in function at the time. Was he really truly devoted to Christ and what he was there for in his heart? No, he wasn't. Profession does not equal salvation. I know many who say that they are Christians. And the text might come to mind, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and following. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out many demons? And in your name do many wonderful works. And I will say unto them, depart from me, you who work lawlessness, I never knew you. You see, just because people say they are godly does not mean that they are. Isaiah 66 and verse 3. Isaiah is talking about false worship, those who come to God with the wrong heart. And he says, He that killeth an an ox as if he slew a man, he that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck, he that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood, he that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol, yea, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I am convinced that the outward manifestations are kept up and maintained far longer than the inward. What do I mean by that? I mean that the heart has been gone for some time before the outward appearances begin to drop off. Why? Because one can't sustain form without the heart being involved for very long. But what is the first thing to go? The heart. We might think of the prodigal son in Luke 15 and what happens. He requested that inheritance and yet remained for two to three days. He had already determined that he was leaving. There's no doubt. And I'm convinced that many who abandoned Christianity have already made that determination long before the outward appearances are dropped off. You see, there is a hardness of heart in those that abandoned God. Romans 2 and verse 5, Paul would say, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What happens when our heart gets hard? Then we have to deal with the ramifications of that decision that we have made. You see, having an outward faith and an inward apostasy is unacceptable. Yet it is all too often common. And ultimately, spiritual idolatry can draw us away from the God of heaven. Satan uses every effort to get us removed from him. Matthew 6 and verse 24, Jesus would say, No man can serve two masters, for he will either love the one and hate the other, or cling to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. How many people today are conflicted with who they serve? Even today in the church, those who say and profess Christianity are torn between who their real God is. Is it things that are in the world, or is it God? God wants us to make that decision and be determined about that decision as we've made it. But here He says, you can't serve two. You'll love the one and hate the other, or cling to one and despise the other. There's going to be one that you will ultimately resent 
and one that you will ultimately love. And you just can't help it. And too often times, it is the world that is loved and God who is resented for the change that is desired to be made. Colossians 3 and verse 5, Paul would say in regard to this, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Put them to death. Everything that would seek to draw our attentions and our focus away from God, we must kill in our lives. And he uses that graphic language, that graphic imagery, deliberately, because God wants us to put those things to death. What was the idol that Judas followed that caused him to abandon God? Money. Money. We know we had the money bags. He made comments about the worth or value of the perfume poured out on the Christ. We know that he was the one that was sorting out the finances. Money was his idol. We think about what Paul says about that. The love of money is the root of all evil, not money. By the way, let's not confuse that. But the love of money is the root of all evil, to which some, having coveted after, have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's Judas. And what did he ultimately do for 30 pieces of silver? He betrayed the Christ. What did God's people do for far less today who profess Christianity? and yet still betray Him in their actions and their attitudes. When we consider the alternatives to Christianity tonight, the question needs to reside in our mind, to whom shall we go? Or maybe even to what shall we go? When the question is put to us, will you also go away? We need to have a firm answer. The answer should be no. Because Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we know and are sure that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But if you've not made that great confession, if you don't have Christ, if you've not put Christ on in baptism, having your sins remissed, being raised to walk in that new life, then you can't make that statement. We would encourage you to do that tonight if you have that need, so that you can commit to God, be convicted of the truth of His person, and remain steadfast having your future in heaven assured for you as we live here faithfully below. But if you realize tonight that you have gone away from God, you left with the multitude, whether in heart or in form or both, you've abandoned God, we have an opportunity for you to come tonight and to make those things right if you have that need. If you have any need tonight, won't you come as we stand and sing our song of encouragement.